All right, here we are, uh, Black and White Church. I think this is episode uh, 12? Something, I don't know how I it's going to pan out. Yeah, something like that. Uh, here we are again, um, day after Christmas, and so we're super mentally charged right now. Super sharp. Yeah, dude. We're both not coming off of sicknesses. Nope. We both, we're, we're clear though, no COVID. No we COVID. Double tested both of us. Mm-hmm. We're not going to transmit the Rona through your listening. Uh, well, we don't know. That's true. Dr. Fauci keeps on changing. Okay, I'm just kidding. Oh, man. <laughs> not kidding. Dr. Fauci. Don't do it to us. <laughs> I'm kidding. We're Ryan, relevant. Right. I need to tell you about where I may have gotten COVID from, and that was South Carolina. Okay. So I was in South Carolina for a wedding. Um, very small wedding, masked up wedding for some of my Southern friends. Mask up, SC. Mask up, SC. Well, not really. I No one was really wearing masks as I walked around. Great. But while I was in South Carolina, Ryan, I thought it might be helpful to talk about in black and white church. Okay. Is on the way to the wedding... Um, we were driving, and there was this lovely store on the side of the road that was called a Southern store. And all they sold was Confederacy a merch. Southern store. <laughs> so, again, that's not a helpful picture of the South. The South is very diversified and very with it in a lot of ways. But I just figured, you know, it'd be helpful to show, hey, there's still stores selling Confederate flags and Confederate merches for a army that lost <laughs> against our nation. <laughs> It's like we're selling French flags uh, or British flags. Yeah. Uh, Incredible. So that was my time in Southern, Southern, South. Southern <laughs> so, Carolina. Southern, Southern Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> Northern Carolina. There you go. We're talking about systemic racism. I'll be talking a little bit about the South, honestly. So, you know, it works out great. And Ryan, sometimes when we talk about systemic racism... You know, we hear the phrase, systemic racism doesn't exist, Ryan. Yeah. Show me a law that's racist. Boom. Checkmate. Checkmate. Lib. Lib. There we go. Laws aren't racist. Our our legal system isn't racist because there's no explicit laws for certain colors anymore. Yeah, dude. I'm already tired. <laughs> I'm already exhausted of this. Yeah. So, it's great. Growing up, I I always heard kind of racial reconciliation as a big focus. That was kind of the church's focus. And and recently, I've leaned a little bit more towards uh, finding racial justice as a goal, not racial reconciliation. Because reconciliation kind of subconsciously puts us in this mind that black and white people just don't like each other and they broke up. And they got in this fight and now they just need to come back together and have a kumbaya. When really our problem in America is more centered on the white race oppressing the black race. And so it's not really a reconciliation. It's more we need to bring racial justice to the table. And so as we talk about this today, and as we get into this, Ryan, can you kind of speak to someone who maybe has already made up their mind about systemic racism, has already kind of decided where they land and and what might you have for them? Yeah, if you've already made up your mind about systemic racism, and you basically have said it just doesn't exist, I just encourage you to uh, just put whatever defense mechanism you have uh, down just for a second to just, I don't know, uh, expand your thinking and to and to listen. Again, I'd have to bring something up that I brought up in one of our earlier episodes, which is just, man, if you have a friend who comes to you with a problem or if you're in a relationship and somebody brings up something and you want to talk about it, you can't just dismiss that problem and think that it just goes away and just tell them that they're wrong or that it's not real. You, you've got to listen and you've got to uh, put yourself in the place of that person just to at least empathize so that you can get to some common ground. And so this idea of systemic racism, just like critical race theory and just like other hot topic, hot press, hot button, hot <laughs> I love hot topic. Words. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> uh, they, they give us 
license, we often think they give us a license to not talk about it and to stop the conversation there. We need to press into the conversation. And so if you have your mind made up, keep listening, uh, do the due diligence, and nice. um, at least track with us for a little bit here mm-hmm. because we're not, not crazy. crazy. We're not claiming to have all the answers figured out. We just know that, man, this is part of the conversation, and especially growing up black and white church, and you're thinking about this, I've had so many white church members tell me that they don't think this exists. And so if you're even listening to this podcast to understand my perspective in some ways, then listen to this podcast to understand my perspective. (laughs) Don't you, like, it's at this point, don't you realize that if you're a white person and you're going to tell Ryan that systemic racism doesn't exist, like, this is the 30th, 34th time he's heard it, and he hasn't changed his mind on this. So maybe you should listen now. (laughs) Yeah. Just maybe. (laughs) As if telling him again, show me the law, Ryan. He He hasn't heard that. So... As we get into this, um, I think we'd all agree that systemic racism existed before the 1960s. I, yeah. I think that's a, f- a fact that everyone would agree upon. I mean, it's kind of funny that we think that systemic racism ended in the 1960s, like when, you know, MLK was murdered. Yeah, MLK <laughs> for being black. dies and somehow now <laughs> racism and then it is ends. gone. <laughs> yeah. Um, so at least to talk about this on an ideological scale, I think most of us would agree with classism. Right, like in America, disproportionately maybe favors the rich over the poor. It's you maybe we can di- disagree on the degree of that, but classism exists in America. And there's some of us that are listening to this, and some of us have friends that believe that America systemically rigged this last election, <laughs> um, or that there is this deep state in America that has systemically orchestrated these ways to be against whatever your agenda purposes, whatever it is. It's, some people even believe that 9-11 was orchestrated by the government. So all those things are possibilities. Tell me, Colton, how a horizontal plane <laughs> makes jet a fuel. tower jet drop fuel. vertically. We're not here to get into those. Although we have a friend that we have both worked with <laughs> whose name is Trent. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Who used to be into them. Not as much anymore because he's right. realized where they might lead you. Yeah. So if you can believe that those things are possible, you can believe that multiple states work together to systemically rig this election against Trump and for Biden. And if you believe in the new world order and in the deep state, that there's a deep state with a hidden agenda working Mm -hmm. to create our laws that oppress certain interests or groups. And if Joe Biden's going to systematically make us communist. Exactly. Then can it just be possible that maybe there's a racist aspect of that? Hmm. Like that systemically... There's laws created because people are holding racist agendas. Maybe I, I mean it's true in history at least. Like, so yeah. It's like at least at least we have precedent for that compared to a communist agenda. Yeah. Um, Remember that whole systematic oppression of uh, Jews with Hitler. Yeah. Huh. Or with Japanese Americans in internment camps. Oh. Or with Native Americans. Okay, so <laughs> let's uh, let's talk one before we get into the stuff and before we get anything. We have a lot of caveats before we actually get to talking about anything because this is a touchy subject. Um, so I just want to split the difference between systemic racism and systematic racism, because I think we use them interchangeably and they are not the same word. Um, so when we think of systemic racism, that's what me and Ryan are talking about right now. That's what we're going to talk about this episode, systemic racism. Systematic racism is a little different. So systematic basically is a racism, systematic racism is like Jim Crow laws. It's basically where it's methodical, it's planned, it's strategic, it has a planned way of doing things. It's like if you clean your house in a certain way, 
And when you set out to clean, you do it. You plan it out. You be strategic. And you go about it in this exact way of doing it. It's very targeted. Systemic is more of a, it's ingrained, it's inherent, it's pervasive, it's in the structure. Um, it's basically saying that there, there's a part of this system that is ingrained this way. So systemic racism is maybe not like Jim Crow laws, but like the crack and cocaine laws. So if you guys don't know about the, dr- the, the war on drugs in the 1980s, um, this is something we, I thought we were going to share about later, but I think we're just going to share about it now, is basically where crack, um, which was known as more of a poor person minority drug, had a much higher sentencing rate than cocaine, which was used by more wealthy white people. And so in the 1980s, in 1986, Congress passed a minimum sentencing act for crack. Um, This meant if someone was caught with five grams, just five grams of crack, they would get a minimum of five years of prison. Now, cocaine had some minimum sentencing, but you needed 500 grams, one pound of cocaine, to get that same sentencing of five years. My goodness. And this mandatory minimum wasn't actually done away until 2010 with Obama. Thanks, Obama. (laughs) Thanks, Obama. But it's still actually 18 times higher, the difference between the two. So this is one of those laws that most people would agree was systemically racist. It wasn't intended to say we're going to prosecute black men at a much higher rate than white men. But they did it a little subversively where it was targeting crack, which was primarily used in poor black communities. So the secondary, almost passive effect, that Mm -hmm. is still drastic. Yeah, in terms of the sentencing uh, of what happened. So when we talk about those things, we're talking about systemic racism. So you might not see a law that me and Ryan point out that says black people go to prison for this many years, white people go to prison for this many years. But that just because it's not explicit doesn't mean that it's not there. Again, like we saw with crack and cocaine, you can go look this up with Reagan in the 1980s and the war on drugs. It was basically a war on the poor and specifically a war on the minority poor. Um, And this is well documented. It's throughout history. Documentary 13th is a great place to start on Netflix. Look it up. Um, So as we go forward, uh, let's have that in mind. And let's also realize that 100% of the people who use statistics use them to present a case or agenda that they already have in mind. (laughs) So as me and Ryan use stats or statistics... Obviously, we're doing this with an agenda in mind to show you what we think is the truth about the laws and reality of American systems and structures. And if you're one of those do-your-own-research people, then you do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, we all do. Uh, Mm -hmm. Ben Shapiro does this. Um, Ben Shapiro has a lot of videos about systemic racism. And for some of us, if we are Christians, although Ben Shapiro can be helpful at times, we need to be careful because a lot of his stuff is just debunking rather than offering a vision. Yeah, there's um, no buildup in here's where we need to go. It's it's just, dismissing this stat, dismissing that experience, and saying that's not true, it's biased, whatever. But we're not actually, if we're listening to people like that, they're not actually maybe always offering a vision for equality um, or hope. It's just more, let me debunk all the liberal, stupid bullcrap, and then look, see, they're idiots, so let's just keep it as it is. Um, when clearly, if you look around in America, there's disparities if you don't think there are, we'll get we'll touch on this in the next two episodes about black on black crime and black fatherlessness. You do have reasons for why you think there's disparities, but don't act like you don't see the disparities. We all see the disparities in between black and white people in America. Some of us just lean towards different solutions, um, and so me and Ryan are talking about one of the reasons. Um, so, one last thing <laughs> before I, I pass it back over to Ryan to talk a little bit about. Maybe our motivation um, for why we should talk about this and your neighbor's house being on fire. Um, let me read this quote from James Baldwin because I think it might help show me and Ryan's heart um, about America as a whole and about this topic. 
James Baldwin says, I don't know if white Christians hate blacks or not, but I know that we have a Christian church that is white and a Christian church which is black. I know the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. You've heard this quote before, but it keeps going. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me, but I know I am not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is against black people, but I know that the real estate lobbyists keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks they give my children to read and the schools we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want to make, you want me to make an act of faith risking my life on some idealism which you, assume, which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. So basically, you're, we often as white people try to convince black people that believe in the American dream. It's possible for anyone. And they look around and saying, well, where is it? <laughs> um, and how do we access this? Because it's not that we don't want to. We just don't know maybe the avenues or we're being held back from certain avenues. So again, me and Ryan love America for the very reason that America is built on being able to critique her, change her, grow her, and make her into a more perfect union. So when we talk about systemic racism, it's not because we're American haters, because we think America is all bad, but actually because of the very virtues that are good about America and some of the, the rights we have in America actually provide us a chance to right the wrongs and to do better. And so that's the hope. So Ryan, as, as we talk about motivations, and even when we think about this, where it's, well, maybe this isn't my issue. You know, systemic racism is not really my, my problem. I got, I got my own stuff going on in my life. Why, why should someone care about this? So I love this analogy. Uh, if your neighbor's house is on fire, what would you do? Okay, so your house is next to your neighbor's house, but your house isn't on fire. Would you go out there and ask them like, hey, anything anything wrong over here? No, you would know that their <laughs> is, house is on fire. Is this fire real? Yeah, it's pretty clear. And if they asked you like, hey, can you help me put this fire out? Would you tell them, well, no, I can't because I got to make sure my house doesn't catch on fire. But then they would say, well, your house isn't on fire. Can you help me put this fire out in my house? And it's like, well... No, because, you know, I really just have to make sure that I have my house staying, like, nice and safe and protected. Uh, sorry about your fire. Uh, I know I have this hose over here uh, to help put out the fire, but uh, I, I can't risk my own house being put on fire. Mm -hmm. And the idea there is that if you have a house that's on fire, you go and put it out. Mm -hmm. You don't just say, well, all houses could catch on fire. Yeah. Or who, well, who really started the fire? Ryan? Yeah. Well, what kind of fire let's is analyze. it? Let's analyze. Let's analyze yeah. this fire. Let's, let's stop the person from thinking there's an actual crisis going on. And let's say, no, your house isn't really on fire. Well, it's really your fault. Yeah. You know? And so. Therefore, the, you shouldn't help because even if it help. is their fault yeah. and it's on fire because of them. You have to let them figure it out themselves so it doesn't happen again. Yeah. That's the kind of paternalistic thinking that kind of goes into these conversations when it comes to racism is instead of, especially system, uh, which one are we systemic or systematic? <laughs> systemic. Systemic racism. It's well, softer, not uh, systematic. Uh, it's right, right, systemic. Right. Systematic theology. Wayne yep. Grudem. Not Grudem. Not Grudem. Grudem bad. Systemic. Systemic. I don't know what other word we have to I don't help know us either. remember that. But either way, that's that, that's that idea. It's if you've got somebody's house on fire, you're not just going to sit there and critique the, how the house got on fire, why it's on fire. You're just going to go help them put it out. And that is the plight of black Americans when it comes to uh, the idea of uh, systemic racism. And it's the account of black churches and black people in white churches saying, hey, help us figure this out. Instead of saying, yeah, we can just grab our hose and help you. It turns into this fight over whether or not the house is on fire when yeah. it clearly is. I might need my hose is. later, you know? Yeah. So I might need it for me. Yeah. 
And so that's kind of the idea. Don't all houses matter, you know? It's true. Yeah. All houses do matter. They especially do. Especially here in Northeast Mesa. As we think of systemic racism, I know, again, we already, we should all agree that systemic racism existed before the 60s. Mm-hmm. We have sh- segregation. Yep. <laughs> slavery. Yeah. Uh, lynching. Uh, but Obama was president, so it doesn't exist yeah, anymore. Yeah. It is a so, classic argument. If you want to, if you want to learn more about systemic racism pre 1960s, you can check out Phil Vischer's video "Race in America." Um, it's the Veggie Tales guy. It's a good YouTube video. I'll link it in the comments. Um, but we don't have time to talk about that, and most of this discussion centered around today. Um, and I know for some of you, it's you don't want to be grouped into older generation sin. Well, mm-hmm. we never owned slaves. We aren't racist. We didn't oppress black people in the 1950s. It's not we my didn't fault. do all this stuff. And it's like, well. Okay, I get that. But when we talk about America, we use we language and we talk about our history. We won uh, we won World War II. We win the Olympics, even though none of us participated. Um, we mostly only like to claim the we and the good and disassociate the we and the bad. When we're just saying, we did this, all of us. Um, well, and mostly white people. So, as we talk about discrimination, we're going to talk about a lot of stats. Before we get in stats about actual things going on in America... I want to talk about perceptions because perceptions matter. And especially in terms of black and white church, how the church sees racism matters just as much in some ways as what's actually going on. So the question, um, and you can check the, the footnotes for where these stats come from. It's, this is from Pew Research. Um, the question is, do black Americans face a lot of discrimination in America? That's the question. 55% of white evangelicals said yes. That's pretty good, right? Like 55% of white evangelicals said black Americans face a lot of discrimination in America. The problem is, is that 66% of white evangelicals said Christians face a lot of discrimination. So they think Christians face more discrimination than black people. And 52% of white evangelicals said white people face a lot of discrimination. So basically, 55-ish percent of white evangelicals say both black and white people face a lot of discrimination. It's pretty equal. When we ask black Protestants, 95% of black Protestants, black Protestants said black Americans face a lot of discrimination. What a disparity. Only they, they said only, 40, only 47% of them said Christians face a lot of discrimination, and only 7% of them said white people face a lot of discrimination. So when we think of systemic racism, some American white evangelicals would say, yeah, there's a lot of discrimination facing black people, but there's even more facing Christians. And there's just as much facing white people in America. Everyone's facing discrimination. Everyone. All discrimination. Yeah. And even when we look in 2016, right after, right around when Trump won the election, 74% of white evangelicals said America was worse now than it was in the 1950s. Let's, let's read that stat one more time. In 2016, 74% of white evangelicals thought that America was worse now than it was in the 1950s. 19. 19- 50s. And we've talked about the 1950s. Ryan still has to drink at a colored fountain. Yep. So again, we as white evangelicals, our perception about the racism happening in America might not be the best lens. We may not have the best eyes to hmm. see the issue. Um, and that doesn't mean that we can't be invited to the, the conversation and we can't offer solutions and we can't enter into dialogue. Yeah, this is not a, we're kicking you out of the conversation. But... When 74% of white evangelicals said America is worse now than it was in the 1950s, that is just extremely tone deaf to the history of America. So those same people probably shouldn't be offering their perception on current issues uh, in relation to the black community. 
So, Ryan, do you have any comments or thoughts before we enter into stats? Yeah, I think this is this is a tricky place because I, what we want to do is ultimately get to partnering with uh, mm-hmm. white brothers and sisters. But again, for me, I, I'm asking you to just turn on your mental game even better because as a black man, I'm always trying to bridge connections and bridge worlds. I'm trying to use stats. I'm trying to use stories. I'm trying to use anecdotes. I'm trying to do what this podcast is doing. And so I'm feeling like I'm always being forced into having to be incredibly, incredibly, incredibly articulate mm-hmm. and incredibly uh, backed up in everything I say yeah. uh, so that I can offer a perspective that is holistic and helpful. And so if you're white and you're like n- trying to come into this conversation without nuance or without any sort of intellectual strength other than just I'm right or wrong or let's just do this because this is what I think that's just going to be incredibly damaging to the conversation to just yeah. not put in effort and into this because even that stat alone is such an unthought through. St- I'm sure it didn't even cross anyone's minds yeah. on that 74% of white evangelicals to say it was worse than it was in the fifties. And so I'm just asking you to please don't be tone deaf. Please think about who else is in the room uh, because there's so much work being put into trying to at least just get on the same le- playing field. Mm-hmm. And if you've made it this far in the episode, I'm hoping that you're starting to understand that and see that. Yeah. Well, and when Ryan offers, let's say, a story of his experience at the grocery store with that mom shielding her kid, mm-hmm. he is immediately not believed and asked, well, back up the statistical analysis yep. of why that is true for black people and then find the cause and effect for yeah. why that is and then dive into other stats. When I have other friends who share one story of a person getting a vaccine and having an allergic reaction to it, and everyone believes them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when it comes to race, we don't take antidotes. Yeah. And when we take stats, those stats need to be verified, double-checked yeah. four times, and yeah. whatever. When everything else in life, we actually just engage people with where they're at, yeah. with their stories, with their experiences, and with the collective experience. Yeah. This is the one thing that needs to have mounds and mounds of evidence just for someone to even be open to the idea it might exist in some small facet. So that's yeah. why we're offering stats, not because me and Ryan think stats are the most important thing ever or stats aren't biased, but just because some of y'all need it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll offer them. So let's dive into stats. First, the general population of the U.S. is about 61% white, 18% Hispanic, 13% black, and 5% Asian. So keep that in mind, 61% white and 13% black. That's what we're working on. We're focusing on white and black issues Um, we're sorry to our Hispanic and Asian brothers and sisters. It's just, this is black and white church. (laughs) So that's what we're And our native brothers and sisters. And our native brothers and sisters. And our mixed brothers and sisters. And our mixed brothers and sisters. My goodness. And our Italian brothers and sisters. Shout out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout out to all Shout out to the Fasano. 61% of America is white. 13% is black. Um, so right now in America, the racial wealth gap is actually widening than it was in the eighties. Um, and we're more segregated now than we were in the eighties. So the average net worth of white families in the U.S. is 171,000. That's the average net worth. For black families, it's 17,000. That's a, a 10% or a hundred. I don't know math. Ten times. Yeah, ten times ten, different. Yeah, that's a lot. Speaking of other things in terms of jobs, uh, studies have shown that when black and minority applicants whiten up their resumes, they are two times more likely to get a call back. So, like what Ryan was saying yeah. in the whiteness episode, when they changed their name from LaShawn to yeah. John they are more likely to get a call back on two times. Yeah, just um, use your chance. middle name, yep. LaShawn. LaShawn John Jackson. There we go. <laughs> John Jackson. What about crime? 
Um, so black men receive sentences that are about 19% longer than white counterparts with the same crimes. Black and white people, black and white people. Yep, uh, white people. Uh, black and white people use drugs at similar rates, but black people are six times more likely to be arrested for drugs. Let's just talk about it. I live in one of the most wealthy area codes of Arizona, and at my high school, Red Mountain High School, sorry, I'm outing you, back when I was go actually there, go Lions, the amount of kids that had four times the income of my own home, and my dad had a lot of income, that were using cocaine and smoking weed and taking Percocets and uh, muscle relaxers was incredible. The amount of drugs in a middle-class suburban white high school is fascinating. And that's not even talking about alcohol. And that's either. not even alcohol. Like, and I'm and I'm and I'm just that was me back in 2008, nine, and ten watching this happen. And there was way less black kids at this high school than white kids, and yet. The amount of white kids using drugs was, mm-hmm. it, it was, it, you can't just be like, oh, black people use drugs more. Yeah. I've seen it with my well, own eyes. Well, study after study has yeah. shown that black and white people use drugs at literally the exact the same, same rate. rates. Yeah. So black men that murder white men, um, or just white people in general, are executed at nearly 10 times the rate of white men who or- murder black Brandon people. Brandon Bernard. Um, and there's a lot of people right now in the Trump administration, this won't be out by then, um, that will be executed by this time Lots. this podcast. I don't know why releases. we had to, in the last three months of your presidency, just bring back all these federal executions just because it's yeah. time. I don't and if you it. haven't read enough about death row and stuff going on there, you can look at the Innocence Project or even, uh, what's it called? The one with Michael B. Jordan, Sexiest Man Alive. Um, we're talking about... Uh, I know what it is on the tip of my tongue. I want to say glory, but that's just mercy. Just I knew mercy. it was some type Something of scriptural that felt word. Scriptural. Go watch the Just Mercy film. Go read his book. It's crazy. I think it's one out of every ten people on death row get found out to be exonerated. Yeah. Or one out of every nine. And um, what is it? Nine out of every ten are in poverty. It, it's yeah. It's You're pretty, just poverty. It's pretty, and it's pretty disproportionately black on death row. Forty um, percent of our prison population is black people. So again, remember, thirteen percent of the nat- the whole national population. Forty percent of our prison population is black people. On any given day in the District of Columbia, our nation's capital, over sixty percent of the black men are enmeshed in the prison system, whether in jail, probation, parole, or wanted on a warrant. Sixty percent of black men in D.C. And we talked about this earlier. Crack cocaine received a far greater punishment on a three to four times level than normal cocaine during the war on drugs. And then don't even get us started on the private prison reality in America. Please go read um, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. This is literally going to go over all of this. And actually provide more footnotes and more statistics and more stories than we will ever have. She's a female scholar, and so she's been dragged a lot. But... Look. Yeah, or the Thirteenth documentary, yeah. which is on Netflix, and that's the same same thing. Work yeah. out the same material. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about pr- police brutality. We already talked about this in full episode. We won't talk about it a ton here, um, but black people are two times more likely to be shot by police than white people. Unarmed just black had, men. What two in D.C. this month? Dude was holding. Uh, I literally just came out. The footage came out like two days ago. Just in a garage at two a.m. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shows a cell phone. Gets shot anyways. Yeah. I don't understand. And so unarmed black men who don't even have anything uh, on them are killed at five times the rate of unarmed white men by police. And you might think it's, okay, this is a criminality sign. Let's talk about black-on-black crime. Let's talk about crime-infested neighborhoods. We'll talk about that in the next episode. If you're going to talk to me about black-on-black crime, talk to me about white-on-white World (laughs) War II crime. Yep. My gosh. Um, So let's let's move to healthcare. 
because systemic racism, since it's subversive, is not only in the, maybe the more demonstrative things of crime and prison and different mm-hmm. things like that. It also shows up in other areas. So let's talk about healthcare and the medical field. Black and Native women are two to three times more likely to die during childbirth than white women. And you might say, well, what health care do they have access to? Um, so I don't have specific numbers on that. But from black women with college degrees and white women with college degrees, the mortality rate is actually five times higher. So black and white women who both have college degrees who are giving birth, the mortality rate of black women is five times higher. Black people are five are 3.5 times more likely to die of COVID than white people. And that's from the CDC. Black men and women have lower life expectancies than white men and women. In 2014, 20% of black people couldn't access health care compared to only 10% of white people. And a 2016 study found that 73% of white medical professionals held a false belief about black people on regards to health. Literally, Susan Moore, a doctor, literally a doctor, mm-hmm. got coronavirus. And then her white doctor did not believe she was sort of breath did not believe that she needed more drugs to help figure it out and was nervous that she would somehow become addicted to these drugs. And she died Mm -hmm. in the care of a white doctor. And she was a black female, actually an MD. Mm -hmm. This is is happening. This is even, this is two days ago. Yeah. (laughs) And historic. Yeah. I'm saying it's historic in the sense that white medical professionals have historically misdiagnose or held mm-hmm. false beliefs about black people thinking they had a higher pain tolerance. You were a slave, so you skin. could deal with more yep. lashings, lacerations, Less whatever. sensitive nerve endings. It's yeah. a lot of doing, dealing with pain. So it's always a dismissive of pain. Yeah. Um, where they don't believe the pain. So that's that's just some stats. There's so much more. You can check out the video I mentioned from Phil Vischer. You can read the new Jim Crow. You can watch the 13th documentary. Um, but one of the questions we might have to ask is why? Why are those disparities? Um, what, what's going on, what's happening. And, and we're not here to maybe give every reason why, and you might disagree on some of the reasons, but the reality is the disparities are there. Yep. And one way we can look at it is look at those who are in charge of making laws, those who are in charge of making decisions in the medical field, basically those who are in power. So in 2016, Congress was 90% white. That's 2016. Governors in America are 96% white. The 10 richest Americans are white. We've only had one uh, minority president, Barack Obama, and now we've had two minority vice presidents with, with Kamala taking Kamala over. Harris, we had yeah. one before then. Yeah. Um, the top news stations are made up of 85% of white workers. Teachers are 82% white. College professors are 84% white. Top movie producers are 95% white. Top music producers are 95% white. The Oscar-winning uh, actors have largely only been white, and the list goes on and on and on Remember and when on. Denzel won an Oscar for Training Day but no other movie? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he's he's one of i think four black people who won an oscar yeah i think it's something that low of a number mm-hmm. so all that is to say is that white people are disproportionately largely in control of the money in america the news in america the, the media. media the entertainment um the politics the policies the local the government the national everything they're in charge of power and disproportionately we have more money i, I just the Net worth of white families being 171,000 compared to 17,000 for black families. You can you can argue, and we'll talk about the the different reasons of you know black on black crime or black fatherlessness, but to just reduce it down to that um, seems to be a little ill-sighted. Can you see the vastness of the problem? Mm-hmm. Can you see? It's that, not just guys? one area. It's this not just not our politics. That's why we have to use the term. 
systemic. <laughs> well, it used to be systematic, and you could argue it still is systematic. You just can't. We're prove dealing. It. We're now we're dealing with the effects of mm-hmm. systematic. Mm-hmm. You can't prove that most of the laws today are <clears throat> systematic in the sense that they were yeah. targeting black people, yeah. but you can prove that they're systemic and they're disproportionately affecting black people. The effects. So that's yeah. why the difference matters right. because someone might be, well, it's not, it's not in the law. Yeah. So all that is to say, we're going to mention this, we're going to talk about this more, and I might bring up this analogy in black on black crime. But when you think about the solutions to this, often someone says, well, it's because crime rates are so high, or that's because black fatherlessness. And so I like to play the four-year-old game which is you ask the question why over and over again. So when someone hears all these stats and they say, well, actually the main problem facing the black community is not laws, it's not policies, it's not things disproportionately set up against them, it's black fatherlessness, I ask the question why. Why are black men worse at being dads than white men? Well, well, uh, the reason is, is well, uh, black people have, a, it's a bad culture. There's a worse culture. Okay, why? Why are black people worse at making culture than white people? Just naturally. Why are they na- why are white people better at being dads and better at making culture? Well, uh, 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 it's, it's some democratic policies that made black fathers lead the home instead of bad culture. Oh, so you agree that systematic racist policies by Democrats set up reasons in our society that make you now not only disproportionately look at black people differently, but set them up for failure. No, it's the individual's choice. <laughs> Got That's it. That's really what it comes down so to. So black people as a whole are individually worse at making choices. Yeah, because than they white decided men. individually to come over on slave ships <laughs> That's and true. become sharecroppers and be slaves for hundred something years. Yeah. And then leave their homes because they decided that they were gonna make crack cocaine sentencing exactly. uh, eighteen times yes. more likely to they put chose them in jail. That. And yeah. then they said, yeah, we hate our own people. And then yes, exactly. they said, uh, yeah, it's, we're gonna this is crimes. my fault. Yeah. And we're going to be crime yeah. people. Yep. Yeah. So, again, obviously, it's more complex than that. And mm-hmm. me and Ryan will talk about black fathers as an issue. Black and black crime is an issue amongst many things. But when you just have a, when your first thought when you hear an episode like this is a reductionistic reason of it's this one main issue. And I've been told this multiple times in Instagram DMs that it's black fatherlessness. Not having a dad yep. is the main issue facing mm-hmm. the black community that can explain most of these disparities. And <clears throat> as a pastor in a white church, the amount of kids who talk to me about their problems with their yeah. white dads. We're going to get into that. We got a whole episode for that. Astronomical. We got a whole episode for that. Um, so I was going to say, ask the question why. When you have a quick dismissive answer to why all these disparities literally across economics, medical, professional, politically, whatever, we have all these disparities and your answer is a reductionist answer. You need to ask yourself the question, why? Mm-hmm. Again, we, we come in and we're coming in and we're trying to be prepared and we're trying so hard to help you understand the problem. Please don't just give us some sort of, yeah. well, it's not, or it is. And we're not even here to like say yeah. what the exact solution is or what the even exact problem yeah, we can specifically. We can deal with different solutions. I don't care about solutions, yeah. but we just need to know there's a problem. Yeah, all we're saying is, hey, look, there's a problem. See all these disparities? Right. Oh, wow, it's everywhere. Oh. And then me and Ryan are here. Like, let's talk about what the best ways are. I don't, yeah. me and Ryan both don't live amongst the black, a predominantly black community. We don't. We don't maybe even know the exact solutions. Yeah. We're just saying, hey, it looks like there's a problem over there. Mm-hmm. And it looks like there's a problem over here. Yeah. What just, are your thoughts? Right. Just like you have to look at the log in your own eye. <laughs> oh, wow. Man. Talking that? about the Bible, Ryan. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's talk about the Bible, Ryan. Let's is, do it. Is there evidence in the Bible of systemic sin? Because some people might say mm-hmm. systemic racism doesn't exist. Systemic sin is not a thing. It's only individual sins, individual decisions. Everything's an individual. If you make an individual decision, you pull yourself up by bootstraps, you can get yeah. out of this. Individual, individual, individual. Yeah. And the Bible supports that because you make Jesus your personal Lord and Savior, yada, yada, yada. 
what does yeah. the Bible maybe say about systemic sin or systemic injustice? So the Bible is going to definitely point to um, all the various ways that the cultures are supposed to combine. Um, we're looking at, even in the, the book of Ephesians, you have these... Actually, no, I'm going to go to the Romans instead. Nice. One of the things about uh, the letter of Romans is that there's a big issue between uh, who gets the inheritance. Who's the real people of God? Is it the Gentiles that believe or is it the Jews that became messianic? Who actually is the receptor of the the uh, blessings and the ongoing uh, future um, restoration of all things? Who actually is going to be the people that get that? And you have this like mix between the Jews or the Romans and and the the Jews. You have these Gentiles and you have these Jews trying to figure out, man, who is going to be the more favored person? And so that entire letter of Romans uh, that uh, Phoebe has to read that was written by Paul was talking about, okay, on the world stage, God picked Israel to be the vehicle through whom the blessing would come, but that point was to bless the nations. And why is that systemic? It's systemic because what you have here is this group of people that is saying, man, we just want to be grafted in. And you have this other group of people saying, no, you actually don't get to be part of that when God is trying to say, no, you are all supposed to be together. And so you have to work through that in the church. You have to work through how there's a system set up of worship and a, an old order of ways that are supposed to benefit the certain people, the Jews. And now you have these Gentiles who are trying to actually jump into this whole system of of, uh, of worship that's now Christian. They're trying to figure it out together. And what we see is that in, in the book of Romans is that the have and the have-nots, those who have the privilege and those who don't, actually have to put that aside and actually come together and deal with that. And so much of the disunity in the churches, and the early churches especially, was working through that who is going to be the supreme uh, ethnicity here. And actually, that's not the question to ask. The question is, who is actually going to lay down um, their life for the other more and who's actually going to love the other people group more. So the, the letter of Romans is a great place to start when we think about, uh, systemic ways that, um, Romans is only about my individual salvation, right? You're that right. It's actually really just cool about Calvinism versus Marianism yeah. and like how, uh, Romans. I liked what about you were saying were there, but I think you, you didn't get it. Yeah, so. you're right. <laughs> well, and even when we think of like, not even how to think about systemic racism, just like instances of it. Like, you have literally Pharaoh enslaving Israel. Yeah, we talked about that a couple episodes That's ago. That's a systemic injustice that happened mm -hmm. to a whole group of people. Mm -hmm. You have King Darius demanding Israel to worship. You have Nebuchadnezzar yep. demanding Israel to bow down to idols. Mm -hmm. You have, uh, in the New Testament, you have the tax collectors mm -hmm. and how they operated with the Jews. Mm -hmm. And even with Zacchaeus, who repents of being a tax collector in that sense, what does he do? He changes the system and he repairs what he did mm -hmm. um, from in the system. And this is fun and often overlooked because we like to make... Nehemiah and Ezra, these heroes. Well, you know the cousins in the north, uh, the Sumerians? Uh, well, they wanted to come and worship at the new temple post-exile, right? Mm -hmm. They knew about Yahweh, but they had all these other pagan things mixed in with them. And so what did the Jews do? They said, we don't want to get this wrong. You can't worship with us. And they did that for centuries. And so when Jesus shows up, who is the most hated group? Well, systematically, we have oppressed and not let and kicked out who? The Sumerians, who are actually the brothers and sisters of the Judeans. And so 
it's all over the Bible of how that's actually not God's heart, especially if Israel was supposed to bring people to the Lord, not kick them away from the Lord. Yeah. Well, and the Bible even shows us instances of structural sin existing on a political level. Yeah. Um, in Deuteronomy 16, it, it talks about appointing judges and officials to Israel, um, and basically God commands them to judge fairly and not show partiality. I mean, that's mm-hmm. showing that there's a chance in the justice system to show partiality to certain groups. There is. <clears throat> and it even warns against people using money to affect the outcomes of the legal system, i.e., what does that talk about in our modern era? The bond system. What is that? Ryan got a text. Um, I did. <laughs> so Action notifications. Oh, nice. So when we think about these things, Isaiah 5 even talks about God bringing a woe to those who buy house to house and join field to field so that there is no room left and you end up living alone. So basically in Isaiah, God is calling a woe on the Israelites who continue to accumulate wealth while there's people around them that don't have anything. So don't even get me started on churches building buildings and bigger buildings and things going on when there's there's poor around them. But this text is basically showing that the Bible addresses corporate sin. When we hoard things financially away from others who are poor and destitute, that is structural sin. It's, it's gentrification in some ways. Yeah, y'all should really go listen to that song. Is it just gentrify? Yeah. It's just, I was like, <laughs> I think it's just gentrify. By gentrify, propaganda. baby, gentrify. It helps you understand. like Microbrews. Uh, coffee shops. <laughs> Whole Foods. Trader Joe's. <laughs> well, Whole Foods. <laughs> yeah, baby. Um, and I mean, even when we look in into the New Testament, James... Two tells us about standing against partiality. Ephesians 6 talks about principalities and powers. And when we often think of principalities and powers, we think of like watching a horror film and there's like demonic things happening. Ah, uh, your head twisted. Oh, no, I'm a demon. Um, I'm a demon. Really, <laughs> I'm a demon. I'm a demon. I'm a demon. got some Italian oh demons. God, Italian demons. <laughs> it's like uh, when Paula White was calling over the African demons. Oh, in the, yeah, yeah, yeah. From Africa right from now. Africa. Africa right now. But yeah, you should yeah. call the Italian demons yeah, over. Yeah, yep. They throw some pepperoni at your face. Whew, um, so, acne. when we actually think about principalities and powers, how the New Testament authors would have understood them to be almost these demonic gods that would rule over the basically sinful cultures. Um, this is what happens in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God is waging war against the other gods. Yeah, dude. There's no other way to really read Psalm 82. I'll say it. Sorry. So, when we think about principalities and powers, these are influences and forces that order how we do culture, that order how we do a society that are against the way of God. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense, the sin of greed in America, America's pretty greedy, that affects us systemically by principalities and powers. There are principalities and powers at place that make us want to hoard our wealth, make us not want to not help the poor, and our government system actually benefits those who hoard wealth rather than who give it away. There's right. little tax codes that may help you give it away here, but mostly... But mostly tax codes just make you not pay taxes now. Exactly. In the same way, our system in America might help us with the sin of selfishness. It, it rewards those who look out for themselves over others. It, it re- does it systemically. Right. So if there is systemic greed, systemic selfishness, cannot also the sin of racism exist on a systemic level? I, I think no one would have a problem with you know, greed existing on a systemic level, mm-hmm. with selfishness existing on a systemic level. We'll critique all of that in any institution. With immorality, right. uh, the sin of abortion yeah. on a systemic level. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to racism, it's impossible to exist on a systemic level. Yeah. When, if anything, that's the one sin that has been proven time and time again to over exist. Over and over and over again. Like, that even more than greed in America's history, this yeah. systemic racism has been a sin that's been there the whole time. Yeah. So... As we end this episode, um, just just think about this. Instead of just running to a Candace Owens, Ben Shapiro uh, t- 
Thomas Sowell video, explain away, explain away, explain away. There's great responses to this and there's great counter responses to that. Maybe just sit and realize, hey, the majority, you know, 95% of black people are saying we face a lot of discrimination in the U.S. today. <clears throat> maybe we could just believe them. 95, 95% of black Protestants, maybe we just believe them and then say, hey, what are your guys' solutions and how can I give my money, resources, time, and effort towards that cause? Even if it means I put myself at risk and even if it means we go down the wrong avenue here or there. Maybe we just trust them. I don't know. Yeah, if you believe in the gospel of Jesus, you should not just be scared of this. Yeah. It's not scary. You're fine. Wow. We should we should end it there. Yep.